You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. SWIFT is back in the cyber news as the international financial transfer system is said to be quietly warning customers of another caper. Outside observers suspect insider threats. Operation Icarus continues to annoy banks, mostly around the Mediterranean. The FDIC discloses five breaches and Congress isn't amused. Patch Tuesday has come and gone, but work for sysadmins remains. Law enforcement may be quietly making its peace with strong encryption. And my interview with Dr. Emma Garrison-Alexander on her leadership positions with NSA, TSA, and UMUC. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Friday, May 13, 2016. The international financial transfer system, SWIFT, reappears in security news today as reports surface of another attempt to use the system to divert funds from a bank. This bank, still unnamed in reports, is said to be a commercial bank in Vietnam. BAE investigators are reported to have seen similarities between code associated with this attempt and malware uncovered in the Bangladesh bank case. It also sees some possible similarities to what's known of the Sony hack. The New York Times late yesterday obtained a copy of a letter to users the newspaper says Swift intends to post privately today. The letter is said to contain a warning about the Vietnamese bank incident, a conclusion to the effect that both this and the Bangladesh bank theft are part of a wider and highly adaptive campaign targeting banks. It appears, according to the Times, that the problems lie in the interface between Swift and the banks that use it, as opposed to Swift's core systems. It also seems likely that legitimate credentials have been compromised. SWIFT is expected to advise banks to shore up security on their end. Speaking in Frankfurt, Gottfried Lebrandt, SWIFT's CEO, told a financial conference that SWIFT regarded the Bangladesh bank raid as customer fraud. Security Week quotes him as saying, I don't think it was the first. I don't think it will be the last. FireEye, which is investigating the Bangladesh bank incident, has, according to Bloomberg, found evidence of three groups' activity in the bank systems, a Pakistani organization, one from North Korea, and a third as-yet-unidentified actor. It's the third one that actually pulled off the theft. The Pakistani and North Korea groups are thought to be state-sponsored, but traces of their presence in the system do not appear to have been implicated in fraudulent transfers. North Korea's representatives at the UN, Bloomberg notes primly, did not respond to a request for comment. Pakistani ministries the news outlet contacted also didn't return calls. How the hackers got in remains unclear, but there's much continuing speculation that these incidents were inside jobs, at least in part. InfoArmor's chief intelligence officer, Andrew Komarov, told the CyberWire that in his view, the speed and ease of attack like this is probably beyond the reach of typical underworld money mule services, 
quote, such types of transactions almost certainly couldn't be organized without the help from either insiders or traders very familiar with operational controls in the affecting institutions, he said. We also hear from last-line security expert Craig Kensick, who thinks the heist suggests that someone who's worked in the financial industry has gone rogue. He also thinks data loss prevention systems used in financial transactions may need more granularity and more levels of control. Quote, SWIFT needs to re-examine their processes and use outside experts to try and crack their system. They, if they haven't already, need to create a list of trusted IP addresses that larger funds can go to without eyes-on approvals. End quote. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm joined once again by Marcus Roschecker from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Marcus, we saw recently a story about some of the mobile providers are, are facing increased scrutiny from both the FTC and the FCC when it comes to security updates. What can you tell us about that? Yes, so the Federal Trade Commission and the Federal Communications Commissions are asking uh, mobile device providers and manufacturers to provide information on what they're doing to secure the devices that they're selling. Uh, I think both the FTC and the FCC and the, the public in general is recognizing that uh, as we use our mobile devices more and more, we're storing more and more sensitive information on these devices. So there's a real concern about securing and safeguarding that information. And the FTC and the FCC want to make sure that these mobile device manufacturers and the the software developers for these uh, devices are doing what they should be doing to protect the data that is being stored on these devices. And I, I know sometimes people are concerned about overreach by these regulatory agencies, but in this case, it seems like this is this is good for the consumers. Yes, 
Uh, I think overall, it should be good for consumers. Consumers should be concerned about the safety and security of the data that they're uh, storing on these devices. Obviously, that data is very personal data. Uh, it's financial data. It's, it's health data. Um, there's a lot of stuff on those devices nowadays that needs to be protected. And uh, I think overall, it's probably good for the consumer that the FTC and the FCC are getting involved here and wanting to know more about what manufacturers are doing to actually protect the data that is being stored on these devices. Marcus Roschecker, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. This week continued to see the expansion of Anonymous's Operation Icarus. Op Icarus is designed to, as Anonymous puts it, bring down the world financial system in retribution for that system's crimes against humanity. The engine of retribution is distributed denial of service. The hacktivist collective and its collaborators in Band Offline and Ghost Squad began in Greece, moved to Cyprus, hit targets in Kenya, Panama, Bosnia, and Herzegovina, and most recently have surfaced in Montenegro, Monaco, Jordan, and South Korea. In most cases, service has been relatively rapidly restored, but the campaign continues to annoy the financial sector. This week, the U.S. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation disclosed that it suffered five major breaches since October. Individual banking consumer data are affected. Congress is investigating. The FDIC can expect to be called onto the Capitol Hill carpet in coming weeks. Early this week, the Panama Papers were posted in full searchable form by the ICIJ. No big cats escaped from the big bag of terabytes, and at week's end, talk about the Masek Fonseca breaches subsided into general murmuring about the need to close tax loopholes, rein in offshore accounts, establish better transparency, and so on. Most of the activity the data reflects seems more unseemly than illegal, or when illegal, already known to law enforcement and under investigation. The Denim Group commented to us on what they characterize as a tenacious cross-site scripting problem GoDaddy experienced and has now resolved. Denim Group Principal Dan Cornell described the issue as blind cross-site scripting and said it's not unusual to encounter it during application assessments, especially in utilities and financial institutions. Exploitation can result in privilege escalation. He thinks developers could avoid this and other problems by using solid threat models, appropriate coding standards, and security testing integrated into the development process. Cornell said, quote, Stored or blind XSS actually appears to be easier to fix than reflected XSS based on some of our research, with stored XSS vulnerabilities taking on average 9.6 minutes per vulnerability to fix and reflected XSS taking 16.2 minutes to fix. This week's Patch Tuesday saw Microsoft issue 16 fixes, eight of them rated critical. For the most part, they addressed remote code execution vulnerabilities in Internet Explorer, Edge, 
JScript and VBScript scripting engines in Windows, Office, Microsoft Graphics Component, Windows Journal, and Windows Shell. Adobe also patched this week with updates to PDF Reader and Cold Fusion provided on Tuesday. They also promised to patch a Flash Player Zero Day and did so yesterday. That fix closed some 25 issues, including two type confusion flaws, one of which is the Zero Day. The other bugs addressed could all be exploited for remote code execution. They include 12 memory corruption issues, 8 use-after-free problems, buffer overflow and heap buffer overflow problems, and a direct search path vulnerability. So cut your sysadmins appropriate slack as they deal with these patches and update appropriately. Signs indicate that the FBI may be quietly making peace with widespread encryption, recognizing it as an investigative inconvenience as opposed to an existential threat. And a Lego guy Play-Doh hack may be joining the nearly forgotten, although not forgotten by us, gummy bear hack, in which imprints of fingerprints on sticky candy or modeling clay are used to unlock biometrically protected devices. But we don't know. You'll recall that the FBI got a controversial warrant to require a woman in California, not a suspect in the case under investigation, to unlock a phone with her fingerprints. Well, they tried all ten fingers, but alas, no joy. So they asked her for the password. Sorry, she answered. It's not my phone. But did they offer her a gummy, we wonder? Swedish fish? Turkish taffy? My guest today is Dr. Emma Garrison Alexander. Dr. Emma, as she likes to be called, has over 30 years of combined federal experience at NSA, where she served as Deputy Counterterrorism and as a Senior Operations Officer, and at TSA, where she led their IT organization as Chief Information Officer. She's currently Vice Dean for the Department of Cybersecurity and Information Assurance at the University of Maryland University College. Dr. Emma, welcome to the CyberWire. I'm curious, when you were a kid growing up, were you someone who was interested in science and mathematics? So I have always liked math and science right from the beginning of school. And when I got into high school, without my parents pushing me, I wanted to take all the advanced math. I wanted to take the algebra. I wanted to take the geometry, the trigonometry. I wanted to take the physics and the chemistry because I felt like I was going to learn a lot more if I took those more advanced courses instead of taking just the general courses. They work very well if you're interested in a career in computer science or electrical engineering. So you, you complete your college education, you get your degree, and now you're looking for a job. And it, is the, did that lead you uh, directly to government from there? Yes, it did. At that time, uh, the National Security Agency, along with other companies and government organizations, they were recruiting at my school. And one of the interviews that I had was with NSA, and ultimately they made me an offer and I accepted it. I'm curious, did you run into any roadblocks, either being a woman or, or even specifically being a woman of color? Uh, I think that there were challenges. Uh, one of the things I benefited from is when I started my career at NSA, while the number of women in the field were low at the time, I was hired at a time where a number of other women were also being hired. So I was one of a few women, but I was not the only woman within the field. I think that helped some, and I was determined to be successful. 
I was t- determined to contribute to the mission. Um, I was determined to be relevant to what was needed in the organization. And through some of the challenges, I learned a lot. I learned the importance of making sure you look out for yourself and not expect someone else to do that for you. You wrap up your, your time there and the, uh, the opportunity from TSA comes along. How are the challenges at TSA? How do, how do you contrast them against the, your experiences at NSA? I always tell people that government is government, so there are some things that are common to being a part of a government organization. But what was strikingly different between NSA and being there and TSA and being there was the fact that one organization is very private, very closed, right, Um, very quiet, do fantastic work for the nation. But it is not a public institution. It's a very internally facing and community facing type organization. TSA is the direct opposite. Their whole reason for existing is to engage the public. They are most notably known for what they do in the aviation arena, right? The airports. But they are they have responsibilities in all modes of transportation. You know, highways, rail, mass transit pipeline, maritime, as well as aviation. So the truth of the matter, the biggest adjustment was going from a place where I had been hiding, working in these highly classified areas, to an organization that's very much public facing. Take me through the decision process. You decide to wrap up your career or the portion of your career with, um, with TSA. And, and so where are we now? So I decided to take a, an early retirement I then took a year off to just take care of some family matters, and then I decided to re-engage. And I had been an adjunct faculty at the University of Maryland University College since 2010, and I really wanted to do something in academia, and that's something I had wanted to do for a while. And it just so happens that at the time that I was looking to re-engage, there was an opportunity at the University of Maryland University College that I interviewed for, So I've been the Vice Dean for Cybersecurity and Information Assurance in the Graduate School since November of last year. I'm responsible for four graduate programs, Cybersecurity Technology, Cybersecurity Policy and Management, Digital Forensics, and Cyber Investigation, and we have an Information Assurance Program. And so I'll oversee those programs at the the graduate level. I mean, that's, that's kind of a different world for you, isn't it? How's that transition been? It is a different world, but because UMUC is a non-traditional university, it has a lot more elements of business to it than you would in a traditional university like University of Maryland at College Park. I'm curious, you know, looking back on your time at TSA and your time at NSA, what are, you, what are the lessons that you've learned? What are the, what are the takeaways from, from your time at those places? One is take advantage of all the opportunities that are afforded to you. One of the things I give NSA great credit to, and I will say that's why they have a world-class workforce, is training. And when I say training, it was all the way from your formal college education. They pay for my master's degree, and they pay for my doctorate degree. Um, so in addition to that, they also paid for other training, You know, whether it was that learning tree or if it was... Um, Cisco training or some other type of training. So as an organization, NSA values training. And so it's important that when you have an organization that's willing to invest in you, that you take advantage of that investment. The second thing is, as you're going through your career, you need to make your career priority. 
You need to ensure that you're doing those things that you need to do uh, in order to move forward, in order to progress, in order to move into the positions that you're interested in, in order to succeed in the pathway that you've actually laid out. Thirdly, I think it's important that you plan out your career, that you do not leave it to happenstance. I think it's really important to create a pathway. Um, the fourth thing is very important to have mentors and coaches. My mentors were invaluable to me, all the way from having peer mentors to having senior mentors. They were very, very important to helping me through my success. I think it's important that, that we really work as a nation and it's through various organizations to get more women and women minorities into the cybersecurity field. I think that is really, really important. And I know there are many initiatives that are going on right now to do that, and I think we should stay on top of that and follow it through uh, and ensure that you know our nation is well protected and that we take advantage of all the rich resources that we have in those communities to bring them into the fold to be a part of solving the cybersecurity challenges that we're facing as a nation. In 2010, President Obama had made a statement that he identified cybersecurity as one of the most serious economic and national security challenges we face as a nation. So all of us need to be involved in addressing that challenge. Our thanks to Dr. Emma Garrison Alexander for joining us. You can hear an extended version of our conversation, which includes Dr. Emma's views on cloud computing, as well as the specific cybersecurity challenges she faced at TSA, on our website, thecyberwire.com. And that's The Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.